Good morning, good afternoon, and good night, wherever you're tuning in. We are Slava and Jonathan, bringing you the SideQuest Podcast, where we talk about character development, stories, and all things that are world-building. And we occasionally take side quests, because, frankly, that's how conversations work. Just as a reminder, this whole show is spoiler-heavy. So, sit back, tune in, and join us on this episode of SideQuest. Good morning, Slava. Good morning, Jonathan. Welcome back to SideQuest. On this warm, non-smoggy, at least in my state, non-smoggy morning. Yeah, I mean, it's not smoggy here anymore, those wildfires, but I still can't breathe it uh, super well. But I can't blame it on the air quality because the air quality has gone back down. Or at least based on the the data that we have. <clears throat> so, do you have any main quests this week that you were working on? I'm Main quests? Yeah, we call our podcast side quests, so I'm asking about your main quests. Ah, no, I <laughs> well played. Um, I ate gator. The tail of gator. Gators not kosher. Lizards. It, Lizards aren't kosher, right? No, not unless you find a gator with a split hoof. They are not kosher. Well, good. What a great Jew you are. Yes. That but sounds. It gross, wasn't though. the greatest tail I ever ate. It was overbreaded, kind of overfried, and the sauce they gave me with it was this chipotle. Oh. I imagine ass would taste the way this. The stupid sauce tasted because it was just heavy and it was just disgusting. So I had you, to ask for marinara sauce, and then the gator tail was that doesn't sound better. It complemented the the saltiness of the the breading and the 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 meat of the the gator. The sweet chipotle whatever it was did not complement it at all. Ass compliments of the chef and the marinara sauce. Yes, but I, I just want to take a quick detour here. Why do you know what ass tastes like? Well, the minute I bit into Chipotle, I thought if ass tasted like anything, this would be the taste of sweaty ass because it was it was not good. Mm, mm-hmm, not mm-hmm, a good mm-hmm. taste in Chipotle sauce. I don't know why they would give a Chipotle sauce with Gator. Not that I'm this renowned chef that knows all the intricacies of pairing taste, but that just seems to me because sometimes poor chefs choice. are given way more freedom than they should have. I think I might have told the story before, but my girlfriend and I went to this mm, step above restaurant. It's not phenomenal, but not, not you know, it's not Applebee's, but it's not a uh, fancy steak restaurant. We went there for dessert because she knew someone, what was it? Her co-worker's daughter was the pastry chef there or like the dessert chef, whatever. Okay. So we're like, all right, we'll go check it out. It was the worst. It was so bad. It was awful. I have not had a worse dessert in a long time. I don't know how you screw up creme brulee, but she did, or they did, or whoever. There was no glass top. They didn't take the sugar and glass it with fire. It was pea glass, so it was like little bits of rock in sugar sugar rock scattered about, not even a design. And the flavor was atrocious. It was like... Creme brulee mixed with espresso mixed with, like, some third thing. And it was like, this is not a good pairing. Like, custard? No. 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 And then we tried it. We had we got a second dessert as well. 
to try like just bites here and there and the second one was also like an espresso something or other like what was it? it was like a cake that was soaked in something but for some reason the cake was still dry which was not a not because it should be it should be a soaked cake of some kind in some sort of like wine yeah. espresso thing i don't know it was just bad it was awful and i was like are you gonna tell your coworker?" she's like no and i was like you should really tell her that her daughter needs to find a new profession <laughs> yeah i'm not I'm not sure why we're putting coffee and espresso and everything. Coffee and espresso no. should complement the creme brulee. You have an yes. espresso and you have a bite of creme brulee. Yeah. You don't pour yeah. the creme brulee or vice versa, I guess. You don't pour the espresso Mix and the creme it brulee. In it or doesn't something. make sense. Yeah, it was awful. And I've had coffee flavored stuff and I was like, yeah, okay, but I want my coffee, you know, hot or cold, I don't care, but I want my coffee in a cup and liquid. I don't mind espresso flavor on stuff for like grind the espresso beans up, put put a little accent on it, you know, something like that. But you shouldn't just mix it in because it's like, oh, okay, cool. And then like not glassing the top of a creme brulee, that's that's like half the fun. Cracking the glass. Yeah. People. Well, that's what I was getting at. Not everything has to be espresso flavored. Yeah. Creme brulee by itself is phenomenal. It's really good. Well, it's supposed to be good. Yeah. It's one of the few desserts my wife and I can get or can share at most restaurants because she has a gluten allergy. And most restaurants that I've been to don't have gluten-free cake or pie or whatever option. So creme brulee is always the safe choice for us. And I love yeah. it. I've always loved creme brulee. Custard. I mean, most things that are custard, I'm, I'm down with. Yeah. Pretty, pretty down. Anyway. Those are so, ask your, Chipotle your, and ask Creme Brulee. Your main quest for this week was Gator Ass. That's cool. I I sought out Gator Ass and I was thoroughly disappointed in my booty. <laughs> pun intended. Mm, mm-hmm. I, I just I feel for your wife. Like, what do you think about when we talk about these things? You can tell me next time you're shouting at him through the the phone. <laughs> yeah. Well, she hasn't listened to an episode in a while, but I, I'll be sure to share this one with her. I'll ask her to listen to this one and a couple others because we, like always, we're looking for feedback. So, because we're we're new at this, kind of, mm-hmm. at least new at this side quest. So, oh yeah. Anyway, let's dive in. What'd you think of uh, our friend's quest on Arrakis? That's right. So we've got. Book two, first section, book two, second section is what we're covering, which is roughly chapters 23 to 32. I don't know why I said roughly. It's, it is chapters 23 it's to 32. Actually just the, yeah. So the Harkonnens capture Hawit. Paul and Jessica are rescued by Duncan and Kynes. Paul pledges his allegiance to Kynes at the facility that is then later attacked. Duncan is killed in battle, far as we understand it. And Paul and Jessica flee into a sandstorm because well sometimes you have to just survive to live and fight another day but the Harkonnen Baron is not happy that his recruits or his his army didn't verify that the body was killed or the body was seen even though he knows that the and Jessica describes this for us in, in the chapter where they're flying into the storm that the winds actually can like tear flesh off bone and then turn bone into dust. So pretty 
pretty heavy set winds. What was it, like 800 kilometers an hour yeah. or something like that? Yeah, that's a hell of a sandblaster. Quite the... Um, Quite the quite the sandblaster. I don't have another joke here. Paul and Jessica struggle as they make their way through the desert, and they lose their bag at some point, and then have to get it out, and we'll get into this here in a minute, but, like, this section that we're chopping up, 23 to 32, is full of tension, and, you know, why don't we just dive into that right now? Talk. Let's talk about the tension here, because... We see tension from a few different spots. We see it first from Paul and Jessica having to flee for their lives. Then the tension of being in the desert of Arrakis and losing their bag and all their supplies. And basically, if they don't get it back, they're going to die. But if they get it back, they also might die. Right. This is something I really have enjoyed about this book. We start off with tension. We know something's going to happen. Paul's visions, uh, the Reverend Mother, the Gum Jabbar the political games that Leto has to play, the political games that Paul has to play, and Jessica, including the whole thing, you know, where Jessica might be a spy and, you know, Leto has to kind of pretend that she is, but in fact, she he believes that she isn't. Yui pretty much killing, destroying the Duke's family. After that, uh, Duke's death, we are now in the, the section that we're covering this episode, there is never a deus ex machina. And even Yui's rescue and then Kind's rescue of Jessica and Paul, it doesn't feel forced. It doesn't feel like, well, the good guys won. Of course the good guys won because they're the good guys. There's a constant battle. There's something always around the corner that Paul and Jessica had to be prepared for. There's no easy outs. It's really akin to real life. No. Because you yeah. can't solve you can't solve your problems in 30 minutes with two, three commercial breaks, right? That's not how real life works. So, in the middle of the suspense, I just have a question, and I, this is, like, mostly how you as a reader engage with the book. When I'm reading a book, something bad happens in the middle, and you're not sure if they're going to get out of it. You're like, well, I don't know how they're going to get out of this. But you're only halfway through the book. So, like, do you ever rationalize, like, well, there's got to be more to the story because the book's not over yet. It doesn't mean the main character's not going to die, but, like... The book's not over yet, so like some, I'm reading something for the next half of this book. Is that just me? I can't answer that question completely. Is that the word I'm looking for? Because I know how the book ends, right? And I know that there's five other books in this uh, series, uh, and there's at least two in the trilogy. Sure, plus. sure. And because I've, you know, kind of did my research of this section for this podcast, the themes that come out here that, that are also part of the other uh, sections is fate versus free will, right? But here, Paul, seeing his death numerous times in visions, and I think there's a hearkening back to Irulan's epigraphs, where she mm-hmm. says that if you see the future, it's already changed, right? Or maybe that's in Paul's head. I think Paul thinks that. Paul says, hey, if you see the future, it's already changed. And then Irulan talks about prophets, when they see the future, multiple f- futures, it depends on how the prophet reacts is how the future will come about. I'm totally paraphrasing. Right. It's much more complex than that. But because of those two things, my knowledge of the story and specific themes of this section, I'm not like thinking about, oh my gosh, what would happen? Is What is going to happen? The, that's not the tension I'm talking about. I'm talking about the actual me analyzing the book more mechanically even though as a reader, somebody who's immersed in enjoying the story, but looking at it more mechanically, going like, this is a really good way 
to write a tension-filled story that is appropriate tension because these people are on the run for their lives. All right, fair enough. It, I, it, I think it's just me. I, I really do because, and we've talked about this in the past, I'm not going to side quest on this fully, but when I engage with present suffering, I always go, well, this isn't the end. There's still more. Until it's the end, it's not the end. And I think that I approach books that way too. So I was just curious if other people did. Anyway, uh, let's go back to your addressing the suspense and the tension. And then if you want to dive off into the themes, let's uh, let's have it that too. I've said everything I want to say about Herbert's writing the tension and the suspense in this book. If we want to dive into something specific, I'm happy to do that. Well, well what jumped no, out no, at you is very, very suspenseful. I always like a survival story where you go, I'm not sure how they're going to get out of this one. And I mean, I kind of expected the Fremen, and I've read this before, but I expected the Fremen to show up. I just didn't know when. And then Herbert, if we've learned nothing else about his writing up until this point, it's that he's really great at foreshadowing. And so you have to pay attention. You have to be paying attention to what he's talking about, when he's talking about it. We've seen, I don't know, a dozen references so far that Paul is going to be the Messiah of Dune. Right? And even Paul's like his terrible fate. So we know something's there, even if it's not exact, because they've they've shown us that prophecy in the world is not infallible, which I think is fun. That's fun, too. We get to see Paul going, hey, I haven't seen this before. I've only seen my death. Like when he's fighting that guy after the Fremen come in. And he's trying to, you know, say, do you yield? And the guy's like, no, this is a battle to the death. (sighs) Okay, well, I guess then that's what I have to do. And then he kills the guy, right? So... It's these moments of tension where you go, okay, how is the main character going to engage with the challenge put before him? And the beautiful thing about uh, well-authored characters is that you don't know. Sometimes they have a lapse of judgment. Sometimes they respond in deep emotion. Sometimes they succeed. So that that is the suspense that I really liked in this section, not knowing what's going on. And then, oh, I forgot to mention this too. Part of what adds suspense to our narrative is the fact that we we pop over to Baron Harkonnen for a little bit, and we we get his his purview of what's going on, the puzzle pieces he's moving around, how he's going to elect like his nephew, and then after that he's going to bring in sort of a a different authority figure to reign over everything. So it's. It's building up still. And even though we've seen a lot of action, it's still just building up, which which is nice. I agree. And at the risk of belaboring it, to your point about what's going to happen next, how are they going to get out of this? They're, they got out of the sandstorm. He, you know, let me, let me back up a little bit. So, like, when Huey places the ring, the signet ring, into the bag, the tension there, how he had to you know, maneuver himself around the craft so nobody would see him, put it in, and then hope for the best. And then them getting out of that situation from last episode, and now in this episode they ridden the storm. They've escaped the Sardican attack on Kynes' uh, little lab or whatever. They're in the desert. They got away from the, the worm. 
they're losing the bag, losing Jessica underneath the sand. And then the next thing, the next thing, and finally, you know, the Fremen, that's, that's kind of like the pinnacle of that ev- those events, right? And then, okay, so they best the Fremen. They convince them that they're worthy. Jessica's worthy of being saved, too. And now there's a little reprieve, but Paul is still still having visions, right? And then you have Kai. I think her name is Kai. Chai? Kai? I, I'm bad with names, as has been established in the last 50 episodes. Just say it in Russian. We won't know any better. Yeah. So then, then the Kind's daughter, we'll call her Kind's daughter, her introduction, it's a constantly moving story, I guess, at the, at the bottom of it. I think, I think it's Connie? Johnny? Connie. Yeah. There it is. I had to look it up for a second because I was like, wait a minute. I don't know how to say it either. Anyway, Connie. Yep. So I want to deviate. We're, we're talking about the desert, and somebody else that spent some time in the desert was Kynes. And there's this whole chapter of his father berating him for helping Paul. Yeah. Let's talk about that, yep. because I, I haven't spent a, a ton of time thinking about it, but when I, was, when I was reading it, I was going, interesting, what am I supposed to be taking away from this chapter outside of the fact that, like, this guy's having a moment, he's coming, he's approaching death, he's having this extra sensory engagement with his dad who's not actually there, and it's, you know, maybe his subconscious coming in, but do you have some insight for me? Because I, I really didn't, I was like, oh, interesting, and I believe that Herbert has a reason for putting this in, I just don't know what it is. I think so. so. Hel- help me out here. I think so. I One of the themes in the book is, you know, the power of religion and people and nature, right? So there's the, the, that's the ecological, ecological themes in the book, people okay. and nature, and then religion and control. So in Kind's Delirium, his father is describing how he used the Fremen's religious beliefs to direct their terraforming of Arrakis, right? And for him, this is especially important because the project would take many lifetimes to accomplish. So if you instill in a people a tradition, a religious fervor, if you will, in this terraforming of the planet, you can ensure that they do it for generations. And so Kain's father feared that someone in the future could use the same religious tactic for his or her own own bad purposes, right? So Herbert here is discussing how religion is used either for good or for bad. And I'm not sure what Herbert's worldview is, is if he was religious at all, or he just, you, you know, from the sidelines kind of writing on religion based on his own perceptions of religion or religious people. So that is unknown to me. But that's the theme of the book. And then the the other side of this conversation is how environmental dangers, you know, continue to threaten the people of this universe, no matter how much they've advanced, right? Because you have the Fremen who have been able to kind of, in a local sense, advance and, you know, evolve, for lack of a better term, than Jessica and the Bene Gesserits and others. There's human advancements that's talked about in this book without technology. And something I want to, it's a bit of a side quest, more of a parenthetical, is technology has been outlawed in this universe. And technology like computers and AI and stuff like that. But there's still technology, right? There's still ships, right? When in 1920s, they had cars. In 1950s, they had cars, but they didn't have cell phones. 
So the kind of technology that's a lot in this world is very much um, industrial. So parenthetical side quest over. In light of all these things and advances, even in, you know, in the industrial technology and human beings themselves, there's still uh, this battle that goes between the between the environment and the the people. Zong Paul is just in awe of the immensity of the worm and how he feels so small in contrast to it. And the fact that Arrakis could kill you with 800-mile, you know, sandblasters, uh, the winds that can destroy you. So I think the answer to your question is in the last thoughts of Kynes as he dies, right? Because kind of in a twist of irony, Kynes, who sought to master ecology, is killed by the very desert that he tried to tame using, you know, the power of religion. And his last thoughts seems to reflect the chaotic aspects of nature. It poses opportunities for human advancement, and humans constantly struggle and advance as they fight the environment that they're in. But there's also the power of the environment that affects the humans. So I think yeah. those are those are the themes Herbert is working with, not just here, but throughout the rest of the book. These things pop up constantly. All right, let's put a pin in that, because I want you to lead us through, and, and let's pretend, and this isn't necessarily pretending, it's just kind of like sometimes I miss things. Let's pretend that I miss all of those moving forward from here to the end of the book. I want you to point these things out to me about some of these themes that you're tracking for me and for the audience. That's the first thing. Okay. The next thing. So it sounds like, at least from your interpretation, and then you're kind of like making me recall the chapter as well, that this chapter was more of a themes, like slid in for themes purposes rather than character development. Because I'm I'm usually looking for character development in my reading. I, I like to know what they're going through and how they're feeling, whatever. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think say? you're right. Yeah, that's right, because Kynes dies. This is right. a man that's been... The first time in history where a bad guy stabs somebody and left him to die, that he actually dies, right? You know how the trope is? Where let's leave him to die in a desert yeah. and the hero always yeah. wins. I felt like when I, I felt like that was going to happen for about two sentences, and then he dies. So I think you're absolutely right that this is just thematic exposition. Yeah, that's that seems like a fair... Fair description. Now, talking about thematic exposition, how do you feel about authors taking a moment from their main story that we're like engaged in to pause and almost side quest? And I and I say almost side quest because I don't. I'm not as deeply vested in the knowledge of Dune as an overarching thing, where I've mapped out the chapters and maybe this is like a really crucial point in like the arc between book one and book two, like, I don't know, that's possible. But because I don't know that, and, I, and I, I'm not privy to that information, uh, jump in the comments and let me know if, I, if, if that's true and I'm missing something, uh, audience. But how do you feel about authors taking these side quests to do thematic moments in the world? Are you cool with it? Do you not like it? Do you, do you, li- do you love it? You have to have it every time? Like, what, what are your thoughts on it? I love it. I don't have to have it every time, but I do love it when it happens and if it's done well. I think Herbert did it well for, for this side quest, as as you called it, because it continues the revelation, for lack of a better term, that Herbert is wanting the reader to know. And 
the revelation is this is a hostile planet. This will take years and years to tame. And Paul and Jessica and their, you know, his progeny will have a heavy task. Because the Fremen are committed to Kain's dream. And we can argue back and forth, well, is was you know, is religion really the opiate of the mass to see Kynes was doing it and see somebody else could do it. And Kynes' father was afraid of a Messiah figure, but Paul's going to be the Messiah figure. But I think that misses the point, because is religion all about control? No, but it can be used that way. Back to the worldview stuff that we've uh, talked about here and there is if there's a of truth, the, the, that should guide our understanding of when religion is being abused, when religion is being used correctly. And if humans have this propensity towards evil, they, they have the, the, yes, they have free will. That free will is bound by certain things, the environment, uh, their own, you know, his, m- historical makeup, for lack of a better term. So how do you, how do you explain that as an author? I think that's what Herbert does well. And he, he talks about religion I'm not sure what his religious beliefs are. I'm not sure what his worldview are. He might be just talking on the sidelines. But Herbert, using religion, is building on this revelation of how Arrakis is an unhospitable planet and what our heroes that we're following, what they have in store for them. I think when you put it that way, it, it I think that it just, it was more noticeable here. And I think that it's happened in other books. Because while you're talking about this, I'm thinking... Okay, I just ransacked 12 books from Cradle. And there are definitely moments that are like, oh, that's a weird thing to put in there right now that's not following the main characters. Huh. Okay. And it's exactly what you said. It's world building. And I I just, I'm, I'm kind of like coming to that realization while we're talking because sometimes I miss things. Uh, this is one of them. So that was good. I appreciate that. Thank you for that. This shows just how, how good this partnership is between you and me. And I'm going to crawl up our own butts for a listen a second. If I'm focusing a lot of my research and what I like to talk about themes and worldviews and how, how they come together and what the author might be thinking, whether it's religion or not, that's irrelevant to, to this particular point. And you're looking at, well, how is, you know, how are the buildings, you know, built? This is a good analogy. You're looking at the schematics or the architectural plans, and I'm looking at the kind of more the artistic. Well, why did he put four gargoyles in the front of the building, right? So that makes for an interesting discussion because we were both coming at the same thing with different perspectives and different interests. So I did a quick little Google search to um, answer a question you kind of asked. And and this is not by any means uh, gospel truth, pun intended, but it looks like Frank Herbert might have been raised Catholic and then switched to Buddhism. Uh, yeah. This now is that you said that, that's search. vaguely familiar. So, uh, yeah. Non verified, but quick search. And then another piece of, another little juicy tidbit here. So, I guess someone sent Tolkien a, a copy of Dune and he read it. He, he disliked it with some intensity. Oh. Which is, uh, it was very Tolkien esque. And a commenter here in a quick Google search says that one of the reasons that Tolkien probably would have disliked this is because what happens 
and this is spoiler alert, but Paul makes an, an immoral choice for the greater good, which is totally antithetical to Tolkien's writings about heroes going down fighting for their ideals rather than making concessions for immoral nature. And that would make sense to me because Tolkien was Catholic. And his his world is full of hope and faith and love, even though there's drastic amounts of suffering in his world as well. And at some point, I think we've talked about this, we should read Lord of the Rings. But just a little juicy side quest here for us. Yeah, that's awesome because that goes back to the worldview thing. And that will come out in everything. You cannot escape it. You cannot escape your worldview. And for those who are just tuning into this episode, it's your metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. Metaphysics is what is real. Epistemology is the study of knowledge. How do we know what we know? And what do we even know? And then ethics, how do we act in light of those two things? Whatever your worldview is, and there's... a a lot of them, right? And even within the Christian worldview versus the Muslim worldview, there's probably a little bit of variations because of just, there's 7 billion people in the world. But there are governings, governing worldviews, and those will seep out into everything. Because if you believe that we are nothing but meat bags and there is no God, you will make certain ethical choices based on that. And you will look at reality in a particular way. If you believe the opposite, you will do certain things that are the opposite, and you will believe certain things about your fellow human beings and their potential because of those things. That will come out in Tolkien's writing. That will come out in Herbert's writing. And sometimes it's subtle, and if the authors are good authors, it, it won't be preachy and won't be beating you over the head. But it will come out in the way Paul acts. It will come out in the way... Jessica acts, it'll come out in the way Frodo acts, it'll come out in exposition, it'll come out in the thematic expositions, the, the regular expositions. So I'm not so, you know, I'm not surprised that Tolkien disliked the book. That makes sense. I mean, I probably would side with Tolkien versus Herbert on worldview and religion. Well, Every yeah, day, I, all day long. But I still yeah. like the book because I'm looking at it from a different perspective. Tolkien's always been a purist. It's why he argued with his publishers about dwarf versus dwarves. It's why he didn't really love, um, was it the Out of the Silent Planet or, or or Narnia? He didn't like one of those books either. And I think it was Lewis Narnia. Was one of his, Lewis was one of his best friends. So the man's a purist. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. But that that's an, that's an interesting tidbit. Yeah. It, to go on your point about authors writing from their worldview, Edgar Allan Poe does it. We we t- we briefly talked about his suffering in like episode four or something like that. And all of his writing. Now we looked at two small pieces, but still. He's littered with death and suffering and the macabre. Philip K. Dick, same thing. We've talked about some of his themes. There was another author. Well, Lewis. I just mentioned Lewis. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, like straight allegory. I don't know an author who wrote a world that he had like a very drastically different worldview personally than the one that he wrote. Maybe we should read a book like that. Like, what does Stephen King believe? I mean, you, you you're a big fan. Like, I was about to uh, I was about to dovetail what you were saying quickly. And a Philip K. Dick for those who who haven't listened to our episode, like he 
dealt with metaphysics, reality, what is real, right? How do we know the world in front of us is real? And that comes out in numerous books of his. And Stephen King, I believe he was raised Methodist. I think he's kind of agnostic now. But part of his worldview, and more importantly for our discussion, is he really likes children. He believes children are, are pure in the sense that they view the world through innocent eyes. So a lot of his heroes are children. And if you look at it, that all the heroes are children. He writes about other stuff. But part of his worldview, a sliver of it, is that that children look at the world innocently and they're not bogged down by all the crap that adults are. So they can be honest and look at the world honestly. That's part of what he believes. And that comes out in Stand By Me, in It, in The Shining, and I'm I'm blanking on the other one, but where kids are the main characters and the main protagonists. So yes, to your point, I haven't found an author who has detached his worldview from what he writes or she writes, and I don't know how I would look for that, like, honestly. The authors I have read, I've looked them up and kind of gotten a sense for what they are as a person. I usually go look at some of the lectures they've done of the dental lectures or some of the other writing they've done. And I kind of, at the at the least, at, the, at its base, I can sort of kind of be confident in what I think they believe about the world or what their worldview might be. And based on that, I'll be like, ah, okay, I see that in their book. I've never come across an author where I know for sure he is, let's say, a Catholic, but the world he writes about is totally divorced from that because you, you can't escape your worldview. And authors usually want to have a discussion, right? They are putting something out there and they're putting a piece of them into the world and they, they want to have a discussion. They want to prove a point or make a stance. So I'm not sure how what kind of book that would be or how it would work. Just one final point on this. Didn't you say that China Mayville also had, like, he was a communist or something like that? Yeah, he's a democratic socialist, uh, according to his Wikipedia page. And he he's a socialist at the end of the day. Which would make sense why he wrote his book with the the narrative that he did, right? Is, is that fair? I think so. I didn't find a lot of socialist themes in the city and the city. I found, you know, more dystopian government overreach. And yeah, I would think more communist with the, with the overreach and stuff like that. That's why I was like, and I don't know the nuances between socialism and, and, and communism, frankly. I'm sure if we read other China Mayville books, that would come out in those books. The City in the City, I felt, didn't make any particular claim against communism or for socialism or for anything else. It was just a dystopian city with really weird, almost supernatural government ruling entities and humans who are forced to do something that is antithetical to being a human. They had to unsee things, literally forget that they saw something they weren't supposed to see that's two feet in front of them and is always two feet in front of them for the rest of their lives. Yeah, um, it was weird. It was described as a dystopian novel, the weird fiction, speculative fiction. What would happen if there was this two cities that were governed by supernatural entities that held immense control over one particular thing of the people's lives. So, who knows? As a, as a little veil behind the curtain here for the uh, for the listeners, uh, City in the City episode came out this week. 
And uh, usually when we when we drop an episode, the first day we'll get like not quite ten ten listens, but but about ten listens. And city in the city, you, you if you listen to it, uh, well you didn't, and I can and I know that you didn't because there's one, one person listen to it. One of you listened to it. That's it. Uh, but if you go and listen to it, you'll notice that I hated that book, and um, Slav and I had a little little verbal tizzy on that episode too so if nothing else you can go and listen to that but the yeah. uh yeah apparently none of you like it so you, so, you know what i'm saying i words right. are hard no it, it so we look at the analytics and we understand that we're we're new and we're growing this organically so we're not expecting 10,000 listens and 500 downloads in the first week but we have five followers on spotify and that's a big thing for us cuz because we're new and we Eight. love you five Eight now? We love you eight. The first day, we get at least five listens. It has been five days since the episode dropped when we're recording this. Because we're a couple episodes ahead in recording. So if you're confused by the timeline. But it's been five days since that episode dropped. As we're talking right now, our analytics page says, congrats, you have one listen to this day. It makes me laugh. It's almost making fun of us. You know, China Mayville listened to it. Yeah. Those guys on the internet don't like my book. I don't know what he sounds like, but it's probably not that. He sounds like that with an English accent because he's from Britain. Fair enough. Fair fair enough. Well, we're getting to the close of this episode. I want to ask you, like, what questions do you have right now, Slava, in the in the world, in the in the characters, in the, like, what's going on? Forget for a minute. Can you un un unread the fact that you've read this book before, yeah. and like, what kind of questions are you asking yourself in this um, this read through? All right, let me preface my answer with this comment: I'm really enjoying how Herbert is weaving free will versus fate into the narrative. I'm enjoying those themes a lot. So secondary to that is human suffering in the way he describes it is in this world that we find human suffering is just part of the world, just like in the real world. And this suffering always prepares the the hero for the next thing. Your question more directly, I really want to see how Paul rallies the, the Fremens. I want to see Paul do what he has to do, right? I, I want to see Paul's arc. And what what's that immoral thing that he does to advance the cause? Because we've seen that happen twice. His father did it too. The assassins, he's like, all right, so we killed the assassins, kill all their families, and take all their take all their shit. So Leto, who's a good guy by all accounts, loved by everybody, has done some shady shit. And then Paul, faced with now thrown into the fray, if you will. What is Paul going to do, and how is how is he going to interact now? He is having these visions. He sees his own death. He sees multiple versions of his own death, and yet he still is the Duke, and he has a duty. He believes that he his fate is to do something great on Arrakis. So how is he going to juggle all that? That's what I'm looking forward to. Nice. I was really hoping that the Chris knife that Jessica got from Mapes. Yep. It was Mapes, right? Mapes. Mm-hmm. Would have come out again. I yeah. wonder if she lost it 
it just seemed like a very important thing that has since disappeared in the story at the moment and and maybe she does have it on her and we'll we'll come back to it i i don't really didn't remember she, yeah i don't remember either but now that you said that didn't she uh use it to best the fremen uh leader of the the tribe that they were rescued by oh hey uh she uh shoot now you're making me think that i didn't read this book um no but me too um, I don't remember chap- her. What Paul chapter was that in? It was either thirty-one or thirty-two, maybe thirty. But Paul fought the guy, but I I don't think that Jessica pulled a knife on anybody. She did. She grabbed the the leader and made him call off all his men and women. Oh, oh, oh! You're right. You're right. I. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yep. Yep. Um, but was it a Chris knife? Um, let me, I'm looking at my notes. So my notes, uh, say, um, Stigler tells the Fremen that Paul is the one that Layet kinds told them to seek. Stigler does not want to accept Jessica, who's not trained in the desert ways. Aware of the danger to her life, Jessica attacks Stigler and renders him helpless while Paul disarms another Fremen. And this this impresses Stigler with her abilities. He eventually saves this weirding woman. And weirding means unearthly or supernatural, if you guys are wondering. Um, Stigler agrees to give protection. And then, speaking further with Stigler, Jessica realizes the Fremen are a heavily religious people, and this could be used to save her and Paul. By using a scheme called... Missionara Protectiva. That's the notes I have. I don't think it actually says that she uses the Chris knife, but I don't remember. I don't remember. That was a that was early in the week when I read that chapter because I I finished this book early on. A quick so somebody on Google a couple of years ago actually said that that well they had the same question a couple of years ago on the Dune Reddit and they were like, hey, when she got on the Harkonnen ornithopter she was searched so and the harkonnens said that they'd pay a hefty sum for it but wait like where did it go one person's response was it probably dissolved like most of them do when they're away from the body for an extended period of time um but i'm glad to know that i'm not the only person who was like wait a minute wasn't this thing important yep plot hole just kidding well it's not part of the plot so there's no hole it's just well, there's no plot. There's, I'm losing it. Uh, it's part uh, of the plot. That's literally in the book. <laughs> okay. Well, this is how we end episodes. It, it's, it's par for the course. Par for the course. Uh, Chris Knife for the body. I don't know. Yep. Just help me out here. Um, goodbye, good people. Really? You're not going to do a little, little eulogy or a little chit-chat about, you know... Read your books and don't do drugs, and you're not. Now you're just gonna you're gonna sharp end here, huh? Um, why not? Why not sharp? Because of the knife. Goodbye, good people.